Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm particularly excited to welcome not just a great friend, but a longtime colleague, Dr. Mark Kerouac, President and CEO of Bay State Health in Springfield, Massachusetts. Before joining Bay State, Mark spent 10 years at the University Health System Consortium, where in addition to his day job as chief medical officer, he spent countless hours collaborating with me on economic research studies. Mark did his undergraduate work at Amherst College. He graduated from the Harvard Medical School and holds an MPH from Boston University, which suggests that he has worn out his welcome at three of Massachusetts' finest institutions of higher education. Mark, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for coming by. It's great to be with you, Tom. So, Folks who don't know you probably don't know that in the year of COVID, you're an infectious disease doc. So I almost have to ask you uh, a COVID question, but let's go outside of the microbiology. Mark, if, if we look back 10 years from now, what big changes in healthcare do you think we might look back on and say, you know, that's probably because of the pandemic of 2020? Yeah, there will be some big changes. You know, pandemics throughout history have changed the worldviews of the people that live through them. I mean, you go back to like the Middle Ages, uh, the bubonic plague, uh, the serfs were in such short supply that they were freed up from being bound to the land and could go negotiate and like free agents. And uh, it led to the beginning of the Renaissance or, you know, HIV AIDS, which I was a foot soldier in that war for 20 years. It really led us to rethink uh, gay rights and our approach to substance use disorder. So uh, I'm going to share with you the combined wisdom of the Bay State Health Leadership Team, because after we got punched in the mouth in the first wave back in April, and things were sort of in a lull in the summer, I called the group together and I said, what about our strategy needs to change? What's the world going to be like in a different way? And there are three predictions I'm going to give you, one around workforce, one around consumerism, and one about healthcare. From a workforce standpoint, uh, all of a sudden, issues like workplace safety, workplace wellness, diversity and inclusion have stopped being quiet little things going on in HR and have been a top priority for me, the CEO. Uh, and we are going to be demographically challenged in the next generation in terms of young folks uh, taking the place of people in our generation. There are not going to be enough of them, so we're, we're going to need to persuade them to come into health care. They're going to need to deal with automation, and, and the younger individuals will be more diverse. They're going to want uh, a workplace that's welcoming uh, and inclusive. So we are doing a lot of work around uh, hardwiring workplace safety, uh, looking at structural racism here at Bay State in terms of policies and procedures, and doubling down on a number of pipeline programs. I guess the overarching mindset for me on the workplace thing is instead of just focusing on the patient. I'm focusing on the team so that they, in turn, can focus on the patient. The second prediction around consumerism, I think, is a no-brainer, and everyone knows it's here to stay. At the height of the pandemic, 80% of our ambulatory encounters were virtual, and now the things are almost totally back to normal. It's still at 30%. And so, you know, grandmas learned to use the internet, and uh, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. It'll be interesting to see how the, how the uh, clinicians decide to integrate virtual and 
uh, face-to-face encounters, and each of them is doing it somewhat differently, and that will be fascinating. And of course, the virtual piece extends to work. We've got, of our 12,000 employees, we've got 3,000 working virtually, and we're now talking with managers and employees and HR about who works remotely all the time, who comes back all the time, how do we do hybrid work, uh, et cetera. And the third, and this one you may want to debate, but um, I tend to think that with all the deficits we're accumulating in this country, payers and the government are going to look to the healthcare sector to recoup some of those savings because of the amount we spend on healthcare in this country. And um, there may well be some policy breakthroughs or at least some incremental increase in the level of government involvement in healthcare. And then let me throw in one little liberal hope at the end, and this will probably make you sick. I think the virus has been trying to send us a message that we're quote unquote all in this together. And uh, maybe we'll come out of this with a greater sense of community and a greater sense of social connectedness. So I'm fascinated by that. You know, you and I share a, a long history, most of which you have a sense of me being on the other side of the political spectrum from you. And I was and probably still am. However, in my older age, uh, I think we're way closer uh, to one another in the the way that we're thinking. And in fact, I've got some ideas that we'll share later in the conversation about where I I actually see things going even farther than I think than you do on the healthcare side. But let me touch base uh, on the workforce. One of the things that we've been thinking about is uh, the, the difficulty in managing a virtual workforce and the kind of almost the invisibility of younger people, how do they get, uh, how do their careers get a trajectory if, if they're not in the conference room where older folks like us can actually see them uh, running a room, Mark? I think it's a tough question and one that I've uh, pondered about. I'm mindful of the fact that I'm using my own 67-year-old brain to sort of puzzle through this. Um, All I can tell you is that many people who do a sort of production type of job, they work in finance or IT or whatever, are telling us they're as productive as they've ever been, maybe more so. And why don't we just leave them alone? Because we can actually measure their output. And, you know, maybe they don't have aspirations to be a manager or a leader. They just want to do their, their tasks. Others are saying, I can't wait to come back and see all my friends and, you know, certainly we'll need to accommodate them. And still others like this idea of a couple days a week in, a couple days a week out, uh, et cetera. And I think because of the competition for talent, the demographics, we're going to need to present that level of flexibility. I think the key thing that nobody's talking about is that if you can actually get work done as a team on a Zoom call, let's say, then what do you use your face-to-face time for? Probably not simple task completion. You probably need to do something around building stronger relationships and a sense of teamwork. So, I mean, I could easily see managing a team that does its work remotely by Zoom call each and every day. And then once every week or two, we all get together at the same time and place and do something kind of different to build teamwork and, you know, chart, make strategic decisions, et cetera. But I think that the use of face-to-face meeting time is going to have to be different if we ask people to take the trouble to commute in particularly if it's commuted to Chicago. You're spot on. You just described uh, to a T uh, the transformation in the work that our group does. And you and I can have a conversation about that because you're intimately familiar with the way that we 
do our research, we've discovered that we can do um, the vast majority of the analytic uh, touching base, you know, the methodological things about, you know, what's in the numerator, what's in the denominator, that can be done on Zoom. What we think moving forward we will do is, as you say, probably about once a week or twice a week uh, in a busy time, uh, we'll get together. But the get together is for brainstorming and that kind of instant iterative thinking that happens a little better face-to-face, but the vast majority of of work seems to be able to be handled in a virtual world. Yeah, I think that's right, particularly if you're dealing with the give and take. I think one of the great things about working with you is that we had these, you know, William F. Buckley, Gore Vidal kinds of debates, and, you know, I'm dating myself by even saying that, (laughs) and, uh, you know, you do something like that by phone, and both people end up feeling insulted, and you do it face-to-face, and it's a lot of fun. Exactly. And the other thing is you need to know each other really well before the virtual thing works, don't you think? If I know that there's an element of uh, twinkle in your eye when you're saying something, uh, I take it completely differently than if I just heard it uh, flush on a, on a Zoom call. I'm going to caution you there. I think we're, we're at risk of sounding like two old farts, you know? <laughs> we are. Um, right, and I'll tell you, I, I served on the Governor of Massachusetts Reopening Advisory Board. It was a 17-member multidisciplinary group about how do we reopen the economy of Massachusetts. And I represented healthcare. And there were 16 other people from other sectors like, you know, hotel and restaurant and higher ed and blah, blah, blah. And we were on five hours of Zoom calls every day for three weeks. And we got to know each other and like each other and have fun with each other. And I still have not met any of those people face to face. And so, you know, maybe a group of millennials could sort of come together as a team without ever having the face to face thing. Yeah, I think you're right. My son-in-law is actually working uh, with a group of people that he uh, has worked with now for a year and hasn't met any of them. Yeah. Um, I, and I think you and I are, are probably looking up at the meteor as it's coming. So we'll, <laughs> we'll. So let's pick up on your last point about changes in, in health care. Let me ask you a, a kind of a compound question. W- what do you think American medicine gets right? Um, and how could we take it better advantage of it? And then uh, put a comma in that question. And what do you think we get wrong that kind of frustrates you and you wish we would figure it out? Well, um, I think the big thing to me that I've always liked about American healthcare, uh, and it does drive some policymakers crazy, is that we have 50 different systems. The states are running an awful lot of health policy. So we have 50 different laboratories where we can try things. We can see, for example, that you know, a Medicaid waiver that includes mandating work in Arkansas doesn't seem to improve the Medicare roles or costs uh, or you know, the Massachusetts waiver, which is totally different, of course, and about implementing an Obamacare-style ACA. Uh, Different states try different things, and I think that we learn from that, and uh, many states then will copy things that are working. I think the other thing that really works well is the whole science of quality improvement and patient safety kind of began in America. The, you know, the application of industrial approaches to work redesign um, were first adopted here. And that science has sort of uh, allowed us to maintain this kind of learning and improving mindset. So uh, those things to me are always things that um, 
we can rely on. You know, whenever we're thinking about, I wonder if anyone has tried such and such, you can find some state somewhere or some system somewhere that's tried it and learned from them. And I, and so that is a very rich source of ferment, you know. I think that the thing that we really get wrong, and I would sort of encapsulate it by saying it's it's really easy to make money doing the wrong thing, and it's hard to make money doing the right thing. I'll give you an example. If you are 90 years old and you need your aortic valve replaced, every health system in America that can do that is going to fight over you, particularly if, you, you know, even if you're funded by Medicare. On the other hand, if you're a 30-year-old construction worker who's addicted to pain pills, um, nobody wants to give you the time of day. And the problem has to do with the fact that some diagnoses are highly lucrative and some are not. And some payers are highly lucrative and some are not. It's not so much a problem in my mind of fee-for-service medicine because other countries run on a fee-for-service backbone, uh, but they don't have that variability by diagnosis or the variability by class that we do in America. And it causes us to overinvest in some kinds of care and, and underinvest uh, in others. And that's, that is really... Uh, more than anything, I, I, you know, the chasing of margin rather than the pursuit of health is uh, what drives me crazy about it. Ordinarily, I would have asked a different question at this juncture of the conversation, but I'm going to flip my script a little bit because I want to build on what you just said. I would kind of parrot that back to you by saying that uh, I'm fascinated that your thought is innovation kind of is our, is what we do well. And then this misalignment of, of, uh, payment with what's right for the patient. Let's pick up on that for a quick second. You might be surprised. I'm not sure if you read any of the stuff that I've been writing recently, but I've been publishing essays and articles uh, strongly suggesting that rate regulation or price controls are, are needed if we hope to avoid bankrupting the middle class. And there's an argument that some people make on the other side of that, that without unregulated prices and, and a free flow of money, quality uh, can't be maintained, which I don't buy. I think high quality can coexist with moderate prices. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. I think that the false debate that's been around health policy is that either you have kind of unfettered free market health care or you have quote unquote government run healthcare like Canada or like Britain. There are plenty of examples of uh, fee for service um, market driven healthcare uh, which have rate and price regulation. I mean, the classic example is uh, Switzerland, where there are roughly half a dozen or so health insurers. They all have to offer the same basic set of benefits. Um, and uh, there are state-run price regulations. So it's, it's kind of like a public utility, like, you know, the power companies, for example. And they compete with each other based on quality and service. Uh, and they have a very effective health system that covers everybody that is entirely not run by the government, but simply a government-regulated sort of quasi-public-private entity. I think there are a couple of examples that support your contention. If you take a look at some of the reference pricing work that's been done out in California by uh, the California Pension fund CalPERS, they decided that, um, and, and I think you had pointed this out before, rather than force people to pay a deductible, uh, which is quickly exhausted for things like a total joint replacement, they agreed to pay the first $20,000 or so of a joint replacement, after which people will pay 
you know, whatever is on top of that. And uh, as a result, many of the really high priced systems brought their prices right down to the reference price and nobody was harmed in the process. We'll come back and and talk about uh, some of these macroeconomic issues in a bit. But before we do, I want to give you a chance um, to reflect on, you mentioned earlier before we got on the call today that you're celebrating your 10th anniversary at Bay State. I'm sure there's a long list of things that you're quite uh, proud of. But if I asked you, is there one thing that you've changed after taking over in your hometown that, uh, that you're the most proud of, what would you say? I would say really implementing in depth uh, a strategy around population health. You know, Bay State is relatively geographically isolated. There's about a million person service area for which we do tertiary care. We're the sole tertiary care provider. And then uh, about 600,000 people in our primary service area. And we've got about 40 to 50 percent of the uh, clinical activity there. We were dabbling in some commercial-based risk arrangements, um, but I moved us into a next-generation ACO and even a Medicaid ACO. And right now, as of today, if you were to walk into the office of a Bay State primary care provider, 90% of his or her patients are on a global budget, which is by far the highest rate in anywhere in Massachusetts. And Uh, If you look at the lowest total medical expense in terms of dollars per capita per person, we are the lowest in the state of Massachusetts and have been for the last four or five years. So it's that strategy, but then that has all these ripple effects, right? I mean, we've got 240,000 lives and full risk uh, contracts. Uh, It's led us to do a lot more with prevention and wellness and working on social determinants of health. It's led us to redesign our Uh, educational system so that students now are learning about the social issues that affect health. Uh, And it's really led to a sort of culture change that's focused more on a kind of servant leadership model, learning and improvement, and a lot of empowerment at the grassroots level to do the right thing by the patient and not have to worry about how's the money piece going to come out. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask you something that I used to ask you when we worked together. At the end of a day, I would uh, I would send you home. Were you hit on the head this morning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, at the end, of, if you'll remember, at the end of the day, you'd say, "I, I want to go home now. Uh, I'm tired of talking to you." And I and I would say, "That's great, but I'm going to be here again tomorrow when you come back." <laughs> would uh, Would you go home and come back uh, and and let us pick up on on some of these uh, macroeconomic topics um, in another session? I'd be happy to, Tom. Well, thanks. Now, before we do that, though, there's something that I have to ask you. I recently learned that you and I uh, both visited Africa, uh, but the only, only one of us stole a car. <laughs> can, can you share that story with us? Yes. I, I have to give you a little background, though, because at the end of this, I want you to say that it was perfectly reasonable to steal that car, given the circumstances, okay? <laughs> sure. So, in 1979, my partner and I became the first two American medical students to go to the Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Gabon in West Africa. That's right on the equator on the west western coast of Africa. Uh, by way of background, Schweitzer was this world-famous 
uh, organist in the early 1900s who gave it all up, went to medical school, built a hospital in the 1920s in the middle of the jungle and spent decades taking care of, you know, natives with all kinds of weird diseases. In the 1950s, he actually started speaking out against nuclear war and uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, as a result of that and uh, had a following uh, here in the States and so had a foundation. The foundation decided that instead of sending money, uh, the, the, the hospital was going to be extremely disappointed because they were going to send two medical students instead. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got there in this, it's a 220-bed hospital on the shores of the Ogui the River. People would come and go on little dugout canoes with outboard motors on the back. Uh, all the electricity was by gas generators, which shut off at nine o'clock. And so you had a 220 bed hospital running on oil lamps in the middle of the night. Uh, and you would be on call as a medical student for the whole hospital, by the way. The only nearby town was about two miles down a dusty dirt road. And that was because there was no power after nine o'clock, including nine o'clock on a Saturday night. The only place to have any fun, get a drink, you know, listen to music, whatever, was in town. And um, there were a couple of hospital vehicles. These were old Land Rovers from the 1950s, and they were like Sherman tanks. You know, you couldn't kill them. And we would use them to ferry patients or uh, supplies around the campus of the hospital. There were multiple buildings over maybe 10 or 15 acres. And so uh, one of them had a name spray painted on it, uh, Maria. So the Maria was a <laughs> 1950s vintage um, 1950s vintage Land Rover. And my partner and I said, you know, those Swiss medical students who preceded us used to walk into town, but you know, nobody would miss that car on a Saturday night, right? <laughs> and it was parked up behind the chief of medicine's house. And so we threw in the clutch, started it rolling down the hill, popped the clutch, got it started, and away we went into town like, you know, laughing the whole way. We picked up people along the way. So there must have been 10 of us in this car by the time <laughs> we got there. Um, so we went in, we had some drinks, listened to music, et cetera, et cetera. It's two in the morning and we're coming back. And it, it's mostly an uphill climb coming back. And there were a few, you know, Africans sleeping in the car when we got back to it. So we had a pretty full car too. Halfway back, people start screaming. And I look behind me and there are sparks coming out of the tailpipe. I've never seen a car do that before. <laughs> I pull it, pull it over to the side of the road pop the uh, pop the hood and you know wait for a little while and then finally take off the radiator cap there's no coolant in the radiator nobody is bothered to put any water in there because the damn car never drove for more than five minutes from one side of the campus to the other and we nearly melted the engine down you know getting that car back so we had to come back in little installments <laughs> looking for sparks I actually put a little water in from a nearby puddle into the uh into the um into the cooling system. Of course, that was the entire talk of the hospital the next day that the two Americans had stolen the Maria and we got reamed out by the chairman of medicine <laughs> the next day. Well, then by, by comparison, uh, innovation during the COVID crisis uh, seems to be a rather minor proposition for you. You, I think you do what you got to do. You do what you got to do. That's exactly right. Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate you being willing to come back. We appreciate you all listening. We hope you find these conversations to be enjoyable and thought-provoking. And we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>